Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I am Michael Kingswood, retired naval officer, Christian, dad, and writer extraordinaire. I mostly focus on science fiction and fantasy, but I've been known to write just about everything under the sun, including the occasional romance. The purpose of this podcast is to share my stories with you, the reading slash listening public. So sit back and relax, because I'm going to tell you the story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood. It's story time. It's story Saturday. It's been a busy week and a, a good week. Uh, busy day today. Um, took longer to get story this week recorded than I thought it would. Of course, I didn't get started earlier in the week like I normally do. But eh, what are you going to do? Uh, we'll get right back right to it since I am going later than normal. We are doing this week again a story from Stories from a Great Challenge. 52 stories that I wrote over the course of a year as part of a challenge that I did and crushed. This is story number 21. It's called Lost Credits. It's a fantasy series, fantasy story set in my sword and sorcery universe of my Glimmer Veil Chronicles. The sixth book of which is campaign season, which I am finishing up and a little late getting to <laughs> the Kickstarter backers who backed it, but uh, that'll be remedied here very shortly. Um, this is a in addition to the five existing books and book six, which is coming out soon, um, I wrote five short stories in that uh, that universe that, that go kind of in parallel with the uh, novels. And uh, this is the fourth one I wrote, I think. Regardless, it's, uh, it takes place at the same time as book five. There's no spoilers in it for book any of the books except I guess maybe for book one but only only in the fact that they're still there <laughs> in town um, so if you haven't seen the series this this story shouldn't screw you up too badly um, but it's a good little story I liked it hopefully you will too I wrote this a couple of years ago I just read it today which means it's awesome and we'll get to it I'll talk to you on the other side Radrick Palatier looked up from the parchment he was reading as the door to the constabulary swung open, admitting midday sunlight that brightened the place more than the lamps hanging on either side of the barred wrought-iron doorway leading back from the front office to the cell block ever did. His eyes lingered for a second on the empty desk across the room from his own, adjacent to a small wood stove that would keep the office at least passingly pleasant in the winter. A rack of unstrung bows hung on the wall behind the desk, matching a brace of swords on the wall behind Radrick's but the man who would normally balance out with him was gone. The new arrival finished stepping inside, and Radrick focused in on him. The man was short and stocky, not quite fat, and had a well-combed swath of black hair atop his round face. He wore a green tunic cinched around his waist by a brown leather belt, beige leggings that were tight to his thighs and calves, and ankle-high leather boots. Radrick recognized him as one of the fellows who worked over at Halb's Tavern, on the west side of Lydleton, past the last of the docks that put out into Lake Glimmermere but he'd never gotten the man's name before. The newcomer also looked at the empty desk for a second, before turning to regard Radrick fully. Morning, Constable, he said as the door swung shut, the latch clicking into place behind him. He made a little gesture with his left hand toward the empty desk. Any word from the deputy? Radrick set the parchment down onto his desk and leaned back against the curved pine of his chair, the same wood as the desk was made from, and really, the entire building. He shook his head. Julian's not my deputy. We're equal partners. The man sniffed and shrugged. You say so? He on his way back yet? Radrick had been wondering that very thing for a month now. 
Julian had left on a journey with Melanie Clemens and Jared Tolbert three months ago, on a quest for a magical treasure that shouldn't have taken as long as it already had, and he'd had a difficult time holding down duties as constable without Julian at his side. A town of about a thousand adults, in a remote mountain vale weeks away from the closest city, Lyttleton was never particularly troublesome, but every now and then a member of the trading caravan would get into a tussle with a local, or one of the outlying farmsteads would have an issue with its neighbor, and then the mayor wanted his regular reports. It wasn't a lot of work most times, but it was never simple or quick to deal with, and it was sometimes tiresome. And with his son, or daughter, but a man can hope, due to arrive any time now, Radrick was feeling the lack of help. He returned the man's shrug. No word, but I expect it won't be much longer. He drew in a breath. Anyway, what can I do for you, Goodman? The fellow, though, went back to looking at Julian's empty desk and frowned. Goodman? The fellow looked back at Radrick and smiled apologetically. Lemmy, he said. Guess we never did make acquaintance, did we? He shrugged. Mostly I come to Julian, seeing as you and Holb don't get along. Radrick bristled at that for a moment, but then he had to admit that Lemmy had a point. He and Holb had gotten off on the wrong foot, back when Radrick and Julian first came to town and took over as constables of Lyttleton and the rest of Glimmervale as well. In fact, Holb had thrown Radrick out of his tavern, almost literally, during their first meeting. But after that initial misunderstanding, they'd been cordial to each other, at least. All the same, he could understand why Holb and his men would choose to work with Julian instead of him. That didn't mean he had to like it, though. He managed to hold back a sigh and gave Lemmy a level look. What seems to be the problem? Another quick glance at the empty desk, and then Lemmy gave a quick shake of his head before replying. Holb's got some regulars who he takes special care of. Guys who don't always have the money for a night's drinks. He extends the credit until they get paid again, and usually they make good, but... But somebody didn't, Radrick finished for him. Lemmy nodded. This has happened before? Every now and then. Most times, Holb gives him a reminder, and it's all good. But once or twice, we had to get the dep... He stopped and cleared his throat. Your partner, to make them live up to their word. Radrick felt his frown, pulling at the scar on his chin. He wore a goatee now to conceal it, but he still felt it sometimes. Like now. Who has reneged this time? Stu Marley. He works the fishing boats. Payday was two days ago, and nothing. Holb sent me over to roust him this morning, and he slammed the door in my face. So, now it's a matter for the law. Radrick sighed and looked down at the parchment he had discarded. It was the report he was just finishing up for the mayor, detailing his activities for the last month, and statistics on the various goings-on in town for the same period. It was almost more appealing than this squabble. But that was the job most of the time, petty disputes. It sure beat the alternative of fire and battle and things that threatened to bring Lyttleton and the entirety of Glimmer Vale down to ruin. And there sure had been enough of those in the past year and a half. He stood, the legs on his chair scraping across the polished planks of the constabulary's floor. I'll take care of it. That mean Bob just said. Thanks, Constable. Radrick had dealt with Horace, the head of the fishing guild, a number of times over the course of his tenure as Constable an older man with a full gray head of hair and beard, who always wore a gray cloak and whose gruff demeanor only partially concealed a charitable heart. Horace had become quick friends with Julian when he and Radrick first rode into town. Radrick's relationship with him had always been more professional, and he had found Horace to be a forthright and determined fellow, if sometimes headstrong. I've warned Stu about his drinking, Horace said as he clumped along Lyttleton's main street beside Radrick. The constable had sought Horace out first thing after leaving Lemmy. For one thing, he didn't really know Stu, not even to look at him, let alone where he lived. For another thing, as a fishing man, he looked up to Horace. They all did. He wasn't their boss, exactly. All the fishing men in Lyttleton worked for the Covington brothers. 
but as head of the guild, Horace had pulled with the brothers and had negotiated a number of beneficial arrangements on behalf of the workers under his care. And he didn't hesitate to give them what for, where the safety or health of his boys were concerned. So there wasn't a fishing man in the town who wouldn't bend over backward for him. In fact, several had done much more than that. When Radric and Julian first came to town and helped Lytleton repel a large group of brigands, at Horace's prompting, a fair number of the fishing men had volunteered for martial training and then stood beside the two newcomers in battle against their town's foe. It was always good to have Horace on your side, especially when dealing with fishing men. Radric looked at him sidelong as they followed the street northwest through town. He hits it hard? Horace nodded. Too hard, some days, especially since Marta passed. He gestured to the right side of the intersection ahead, to the street that led to Bigsby's boarding house. Turning in that direction, Radric as always felt the change beneath his feet and fought back a minor bout of irritation. Main Street was the only paved road in Lyttelton. The others were packed earth that more often than not were muddy messes or worse, in the winter, treacherous ice sheets. He had spoken with the mayor about completing the project to pave the remaining streets in the town several times, and the answer was always the same. The reason Lyttelton had stopped the project in the first place still held. Not enough money and it required too much time away from tasks that actually kept the town alive, namely fishing in Lake Lemermere, which was understandable, but it still rankled, sometimes. But that was neither here nor there right this moment. Marta was his wife? Horace shook his head. No, Sabine passed ten years ago. Marta was their daughter. Caught consumption the winter before you and Julian got to town. Rajik winced. He had always known that was a terrible blow to endure. But now, with his first child coming so soon, he couldn't imagine having to live through that. Poor guy. Horace nodded. One of the best men in the boats. But out of him, he left the rest of his sentence off and shook his head again, this time in commiseration from the pitying expression on his face. The two men walked, in silence, the rest of the two blocks until they reached Bigsby's boarding house. It was a long, broad building, two stories tall, with the sharply angled roof tiles that all of Lyttleton had, the better to let snow fall off it during the winter. It took up most of the block itself, and was well kept. Radric led the way through the front entrance and into the foyer, where Bigsby's attendants held court behind a counter to the left of the door. The attendant today was Tammy, a young girl just recently reached maturity who still resided with her parents while she got herself onto her feet as an adult. She was almost pretty, and brown-haired with hazel eyes, but her smile made up for whatever deficiencies her bone structure had, turning her face into a pleasant ray of sunshine in the otherwise dimly lit entryway. She bobbed a curtsy when she saw Radric, the visible portion of her brown and white dress bunching slightly as she moved. Good day, Constable, she said. How fares Lonnie? Radric stopped, mention of his wife bringing a grin to his face. Every day is a trial for her, he said, and I thank the gods I don't have to endure it. Tammy giggled slightly, the same way all the young women did when Radric made that joke. It was only half a joke. He wasn't at all sure how he'd cope with the trials of pregnancy, let alone the pains of childbirth, but women were made for it and knew it in their bones how to cope, and they thought themselves superior to men because of it. The fact that every woman batted their eyelashes when he made the statement proved it. Oh well, whatever kept them happy. We're here to see Stu, Horace said, and Tammy's smile faded. She glanced between the two of them and nodded, then gestured toward the rear of the foyer. The room past the attendant's counter was split three ways the stairs leading upward to the second floor, and the two corridors leading left and right, providing access to the ground floor rooms. Tammy's fingers pointed to the right, and Horace nodded. Thanks, he said, but Radric was sure he didn't need the directions. There was no way Horace didn't know exactly where a member of his guild lived. They walked to the rear of the foyer and turned right. The corridor had matched pairs of doors every three paces, all the way down to the end. 
Horace stopped at the third door on the left and knocked. No answer after a long several seconds. Horace knocked again, louder this time, with the heel of his fist. Still nothing. Horace turned to meet Radrick's gaze, and his eyebrows rose slightly. He's not at work, right? Radrick asked. Horace shook his head. He's got the evening shift. But he should be up by now. Try again. More pounding, and still nothing. Radrick looked down at the corridor, past the remaining three pairs of doors to where the corridor ended at the timber of the boarding house's outer wall. Wait here, he said, then he hurried back to the foyer, where Tammy was doing sums behind her counter. She jerked to attention when he stopped in front of her and rose to her full height. She was remarkably tall. Then she bobbed a curtsy yet again. No time for this, Radrick said. Has Stu departed at all today? Tammy slowed as she rose from her curtsy, her eyebrows rising. I haven't seen him. When did you come on duty? She glanced toward the front door and shrugged. Six bells this morning. Radrick did some quick sums in his head. That was almost five hours ago. If Stu had been on the evening shift on the boats, he would have gotten off the boats at the dead of the night, since the fish only bit at sunset and sunrise. A few hours for a late dinner and some drinking. There was no way he wasn't still here if he had come home before Tammy had come on duty. And if he hadn't come home since she had... Well, there was no chance of that unless he was face down in the gutter somewhere. But Rajuk would have heard of his being in that condition already. The largest use he and Julian put to the cell block was for local drunks who'd passed out somewhere so they could have a safe place to sleep it off, which meant Stu had to be in his room. Thank you, Tammy, Radrick said. Give Bigsby my apologies. He turned and hurried back to the corridor toward Stu's room, Tammy's what echoing behind him, unanswered. Horace was still standing in front of the door, pacing impatiently. He looked up as Radrick approached, his eyes narrowed in concern. Break it down, Radrick ordered. Horace's eyes widened. Then he turned and drove his heel against the door, at the level of its latch. It sprang open inward, and the older man stumbled forward out of Radrick's view. He heard Horace curse softly, then cry out in shock, then, Oh, God's Radrick, help! Radrick sprinted the last few yards to the door and leapt inside. The room was small, as he knew all the rooms at Bigsby's to be. A bed just large enough for one on the right-hand wall, a wash basin and chamber pot at its head, a small bureau on the other side of the room, a single window with limp gray drapes that were drawn to blot out the view of the street beyond. And in the middle stood Horace. His arms were braced around the waist of a man Radrick didn't recognize, but he wore the same gray cloak that Horace always did, the mark of a fishing man. Beneath the cloak, his shirt was yellow and his leggings green. He hung limply, his arms and legs dangling and his head lolling forward. A rope was tied off around the rafter above his head, and the other end was looped around Stu's neck. As Redrick drew up, shocked, Stu's arms and legs spasmed weakly. Horace was pushing upward on his body to try to relieve the pressure on his neck, but he was very nearly gone. Radrick sprang forward onto the bed and pulled his knife from its sheath on his belt. He reached up and began sawing at the rope, desperate terror lending extra speed to his strokes. Radrick squared his shoulders and stepped into Holb's tavern. It wasn't really a building. Oh, there was a building there. It stretched back from the street away's until a twenty-foot section of the red-painted building's wall had been cut away. In its place, Holb had installed a running countertop where he served drinks. He had erected a wooden awning above the bar that ran out a good thirty feet from the side of the building. Beneath that awning, there were a number of tables where Holb's customers could sit and drink. And eat if they brought it with them. Holb did not serve food. Radrick had only come here a few times, and only then for business. His experience the first time he'd come through still weighed on him. He hoped Holb's wife had gotten over the insult, but he hadn't even known it would be an insult. Holb himself was a tall fellow, with shoulders that put a giant to shame. 
He kept his head shaved bald, whether because he preferred shaving it that way or because his hair had fled at his temper, Radric didn't know for sure. He had a scar that ran from his left eyebrow to his left ear, which had a little notch cut out of it. He had dark brown eyes that shone with intelligence and bad temper. He held court behind the bar in his stained white apron and cast a distrustful gaze upon Radric as he weaved his way through the tables. Even at this afternoon hour, Holb had plenty of customers. I found Stu, Radric said, without preamble, and Holb's eyebrow lifted, voicing a question without asking it. He tried to hang himself. He's over at the healing circle. Master Sebastini is trying to tend to him. Holb's jaw dropped open, shock followed by confusion, followed by remorse crossing over his face and half a heartbeat before he got himself back under control. You got my money, he said. Radric scowled. That's all you're worried about, his bar tab? Holb shrugged. Rest of it's not my business. Radric had to force himself not to clench his fists. You know about his wife and daughter. Holb nodded. Do you know what day today is? Holb just looked at him with a blank expression. Radric ground his teeth for a moment before continuing. Today is his daughter's naming day. She would have reached her ascendancy this year. Still nothing for the bartender. He's been coming here for years. You had to know. What's your point, Constable? Holb said. How much did you let him drink last night? His usual. And the night before? The same. Radric felt that scar tugging at his chin again, and he knew he was scowling too hard. But he didn't care. I ought to arrest you for complicity in his death. Holb snorted. You already said he ain't dead. Don't play games with me, Constable. We both know how that will turn out. That took a bit of the wind from Radric's sails. Though it pained him to remember, Holb had an embarrassingly easy time throwing him out of the bar the first time. Radric had no desire to repeat that incident. And unless he was willing to draw steel, he suspected he would if it came to blows. And maybe even if he did draw steel. You knew he was having problems, and you let him drown himself in beer every chance he got. You even extended credit to him. I know what he owed you. A fishing man couldn't pay that back in a year on his wages, not unless he went without food and shelter. Radric leaned forward. What were you doing with him? Holb stopped moving. He just looked at Radric without words for a long moment. Then he shrugged. Radric let out a disgusted snort. Fishing around inside his jacket, he pulled out a sack. It jingled as he held it up in front of the bar. And it ought to. He had filled it with the funds from the Constabulary's discretionary fund. Radric tossed the pouch onto the bar, and it landed with a tinkling thunk. Holb's eyes twitched down toward it for the shortest of instants before returning back to Radric's. His left eye moved upward slightly. That should even things up, Radric said, but Stu never drinks here again. Holb's right eyebrow rose to join the left. Master Sebastini thinks he'll pull through, and he's putting Stu on a regime to purge him of his need for drink. But for that to work, he has to abstain. He leaned toward Holb, locking stairs with the big bartender. I hear he's had even a single drink here. There will be problems. Holb matched his gaze, and they stared into each other's eyes for what felt like a long time. Finally, after a small eternity, the bartender broke the connection and reached down to pick up the pouch of coins. He tossed it in his hand, feeling the weight, then nodded. Though he was frowning slightly, something about his carriage suggested satisfaction to Radric. However you want it, Constable, Holb said. Good. With that, Radric turned and walked away from Holb's tavern. His report to the mayor technically didn't have to include the information on the incident with Stu. It could go in the next month's report. He wouldn't have to change a thing that he'd already written. But Radric felt strongly the need to include it now. He might forget some detail, or forget the incident entirely, and that just wouldn't be right. Not for Stu, not for his lost wife and daughter, and not for Holb. And not for himself. As Radric put pen to parchment on his desktop again, he reflected that he might have been too harsh with Holb. 
Yes, Holb knew what had happened with Stu's family, but that didn't mean his extending credit to the man was a malicious act. Maybe that was the only way he knew to help, or at least to show a big kindness to the man he'd known for years. That was possible. But it was certain that the outstanding debt had allowed Holb to gain some leverage over Stu. To do what, Radrick had no idea. Maybe nothing. Or maybe something. Something important. Or not. Radrick shook his head at his flights of fancy and rode on, determined not to include those flights of fancy in his report. Just the facts, and only the facts. And the fact was that Stu was going to be fine. And now that he couldn't drink from Holb's tavern anymore, maybe he could become better than fine. Maybe he'd get his life back together and going in a good path from now on. Radrick was beginning to smile a satisfied smile when it occurred to him that Holbs wasn't the only place in town the stoop could get a drink. He could just as easily go to... The door latch lifted and the door to the outside swung inward. A figure stepped awkwardly in, and Redrick saw long, blonde hair, well-informed breasts beneath a blue blouse and a white apron, and a bulging belly, with a baby about to come any time now. Lonnie! He bounded to his feet, coming around the desk before his wife could close the door behind herself. Are you well? She gave him a level look. Of course I'm well. Figured you'd be hungry. It's past dinner. Lonnie extended her hands, and Redrick blinked to realize he had completely missed the tray she was holding in her hands. He had focused on her belly, and then on her sweet face, so completely. But how could he have missed the scents rising from the plate atop the tray? Fried fish and boiled potatoes and leeks, and his stomach growled. But Radrick forced himself to dignity, accepting the tray quickly and steadily, and turning to place it on top his desk. Then he paused to inhale the vapors rising from the meal. Your mother has outdone herself today, he said. Lonnie snorted. You say that every day. He turned back to her and grinned. It's true every day. Have you eaten? She nodded, but rubbing her baby bump, she said, but I may share a bit of yours, if you don't mind. He just grinned at her. Along the wall, adjacent to the front door, were several chairs for guests, or witnesses. He moved one over in front of his desk and waited for her to sit down. Then he took his own seat behind the desk. They dug in. After a couple of minutes of biting and chewy, Lonnie said, I heard about Stu. Radrick stopped mid-chew and nodded. Swallowing quickly, he said, I was going to come talk to you and Molly about that. Ravi Sebastini is treating him, but once he's done, he can't have a drink anymore. Holbs already agreed not to let him have anything. You need to make sure he doesn't partake from the Orlock. Monty nodded. Mother and I already talked about it, as soon as we heard. He'll get no drink from us. She paused, then added, Poor man. Radrick nodded, his eyes going downward again to the bump in Lonnie's belly. I can't imagine going through what he did. She pressed her hand to her belly and nodded. It's something we should have addressed a long time ago, but he seemed to take it all so well, and then she trailed off and shook her head. If there's one thing I love about this place is that we all come together when it's needed. We all help each other. Now that we all really know, we'll make sure Stu gets back to healthy again. Radrick nodded. He had seen that instinct himself, back when he'd first visited Glimmer Vale as a child, and then again when he and Julian returned to find the town under siege by Eisenhoff's brigands. The sense of community, that they were all in it together, was striking and he had seen it again several times since. So, as he finished dinner with his wife, though he continued to feel a pity for Stu, he couldn't lack hope for the man. He would have a better future. They would all see to that. And that would make a better future for all of them. Alright, so the work of a constable is never done, especially in a small town like Lyttleton. And, uh, another day-in-the-life kind of story, like, like Wire Runs a couple weeks back. Um... I like this one because it's, well, you, you heard it. It's a good little story about uh, the gospel and helping the guy out and other people in town trying to help a guy out. And, yeah, 
I like it. Hope you did too. Um, if you did, come back here next week. We'll do story number 22. And that is Hunting for Game. That is a mystery slash crime story that I wrote about a dude who's going up into a hunting blind. They set up in the woods, but he ain't hunting for deer. So, that'll be next week. That'll be cool. Um, yeah, meantime, uh, please, if you like what I'm doing here, subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel or BitChute channel or whatever it is you're seeing this on or hearing it on. Go by MikeKingswood.com. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can sign up for to be a member of the site and give a couple bucks a month to help your brother out. Go to the store, MikeKingswood.com slash store. You can get all the books uh, that I have in existence in whatever format you want. You can, of course, go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Apple Books, you know, all the retailer sites. Better to come to me. I get more cash that way. We get a one-on-one relationship of uh, artist, uh, artist slash merchant to customer and so if some chicanery happens uh, with a retailer of some sort, doesn't have to impede our commerce together. Um, but either way, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy this. Spread the word of what we're doing, and I'll talk to you next week. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. For information on all my books, visit michaelkingswood.com or visit my web store at ssnstorytelling.com. My books are all available through all the various e-tailers, but buying direct from me nuts me the most profit. For information on new releases and other special deals in the future, sign up for my newsletter on my website. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyrighted by Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music is copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.